0: hi this is matt mcclellan and welcome to the grower radio network i'm here today with john peter thompson an invasive species and sustainability consultant who works with the uh... Um, a member of the national invasive species councils advisory committee as well as the maryland invasive species council on which he represents the maryland nursery and landscape association he's a fourth generation nurseryman who spent twenty years at Baggy nurseries started the jan- as the janitor and ended as the ceo Uh, Thanks for being with us here today, John Peter.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted and honored.
0: All right. Now, uh, today we're going to focus on uh, some invasive species that that growers should be concerned about, uh, with the uh, caveat that we're talking east of the Mississippi, excluding Florida. Uh, And uh, for other regions, uh, we'll be discussing those in upcoming podcasts as well. So, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's get started by talking about some of the invasive species that growers in that area should be uh, concerned about.
1: So, the, Thank you very much for this opportunity. I've, I've picked a list based on my experience of plants that are widely described in the ornamental trade that our customers expect to find, that landscape designers and architects have traditionally used for landscape solutions. So none of these plants are obscure, novel, new. They're they're stalwarts in the nursery industry, production, retail, and landscaping. And just to get us started, uh, I've picked uh, Japanese and Chinese wisteria, which are actually two different uh, species. But uh, if you think of this oriental wisteria, this plant uh, has been in the United States since the 19th century. It's a mainstay of ornamental gardens. It has many uses in landscape design, and unfortunately, if it's actually successful where it's planted, many times it escapes, meaning it leaves the landscape and moves into natural areas where it wreaks havoc. Um, This plant is found all up and down the East Coast and across into the Ohio Valley, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. Uh, I can remember seeing it intertwined with uh, pink roses like uh, climbing Queen Elizabeth, and the beautiful purple flowers of the wisteria, which are extremely fragrant, Fragrant uh, twine around the fragrant pink rose, and it just knocks you out. However, wisteria, the Oriental wisteria, is a bad actor, and many states uh, have it on lists of beware, if not on this is a real troublemaker. I'm using these words. uh, Wisteria, Oriental Wisteria, shows up as an invasive species, and if you're growing it and selling it, you probably need to, more than probably, you need to keep an eye on your marketplace, your customers' needs, and of course, uh, changing local policies Regulations and yes, even though we uh, kind of said we weren't going to think about alternatives, there are lots of alternatives, and one of them is there's a perfectly fine American wisteria. Uh, so if you're thinking, oh man, I can't get rid of this, what am I going to sell? Well, you sell the American one, the native.
0: So uh, could you could you tell me a little bit about the difference between the American and the Oriental uh, wisteria?
1: The American is the flowers are smaller. Um, but it's a panicle of flowers. They are smaller, but when the plant is full grown, um, it produces as many flowers as the oriental wisteria, and so the effect is the same. The significant difference is the fragrance. The oriental wisterias are extremely fragrant. You know it's there before you see it, uh, the American wisteria, shall we say, is a little more laid back, and while it is fragrant, that's not its big, uh, big selling point. So dainty, I guess that's the word I'd use. The American wisteria is more refined; it's it's not as aggressive, it's not as muscular a plant, and it, and its flowers are dainty. I'll leave you to to imagine that. Okay. So, moving on, another mainstay, been here since before the Civil War, is the honeysuckle group—bush honeysuckle and vining honeysuckle. Uh, I'll focus on Japanese honeysuckle, for for example. When I was growing up, honeysuckle ran along the barbed wire between fields, and my German nurseryman grandfather wouldn't let us take a break, so we'd sneak over to the honeysuckle and get little sugar water out of it. it. Has the very fragrant when it blooms, almost impossible to kill. Uh, it's a great edging plant with its yellow and white flowers. And of course, because it's a vine, because you can't kill it, uh, all of those wonderful attributes that we use it for, it escapes readily and simply smothers natural areas. It's, it's, a, it's as difficult to get rid of in your garden as it is to get rid of in a park or forest or road edge. And again, well, I, I just have to tell you, there, there's an American alternative. And not and in this case, the American alternatives uh, come in all kinds of colors, not just white and yellow. You get tangerines and, and, and uh, various melon colors and pinks and reds. Uh, again, not as fragrant. I, I, I'm going to call it dainty, but even that's uh, probably not the right word. It's simply not as fragrant and not as aggressive, and it's native, therefore it fits in. It doesn't busily replace other plants in a natural area. So honeysuckles, they're a problem. They're a growing problem. If you're growing them, check out the American honeysuckle as an alternative. Um, I have to mention English ivy that's been here as long as the English uh, English ivy, uh, well, it's it's a mainstay. We used to sell it as the plant to grow when you had when you ran out of solutions. Shade, barren. You can drive a bus over it repeatedly. You can't kill it. You can mow over it, weed whack it. You can even spray it with Roundup. Nothing kills it. Um, and for that reason, when it gets loose in a natural area, nothing kills it. Not only that, nothing eats it. It's a host to nothing. It doesn't really get any diseases. Uh, It's a really bad actor right across the United States, not just in our area. Wherever it grows, it has the potential to create major problems when it gets loose. And, of course, English ivy being a vine gets loose. The interesting thing about it is it's not so much when it's in its juvenile ground cover stage, but when it, it climbs a tree and gets into the adult stage, the birds love the berries not only that, it spreads out on the branches of trees, weighs them down in an ice storm, down come the branches. So, English ivy is on everybody's no-no list. There are alternatives. Autumn olives, uh, suggested by the industry because it will grow almost anywhere. Old, uh as a tree, a landscape tree, um, as a specimen ornamental or as a hedgerow tree grows anywhere, drought tolerant, another one of these plants where you can drive over the roots, and, uh, run the lawnmower into it, this is not a good choice and is showing up on more and more don't plant lists and, and state and local invasive lists. Invasive lists are the first step towards actual regulatory policy, and, and uh, the nurserymen should check their county, municipal um, governments to see what they're doing, and then also look. Most states have a list of invasive plants and see if it's on it. Autumn olive, not a good choice. Certainly something to be aware of if you're growing it uh, because its days may be numbered. Now comes one that is a mainstay of the nursery industry, Japanese barberry. This is banned in some states already. Um, it's a great landscape choice, as I tell customers. If you have a commercial building and you want to keep muggers out of a corner, you plant barberry, it's like living barbed uh, wire. Uh, the, the good things about barberry are are just wonderful, the color, uh, the different heights that you can get, uh, and of course you can use it to direct traffic, pick up uh, wind-blown garbage, collects in it, so you can keep turf free of leaves and things. Uh, the, the uses are incredible. However, it quite merrily leaves the landscape and gets into woodlands, and it replaces every single understory plant. Nothing can grow in there. It becomes basically a, a, a thorn, a thorny impassable. Uh, understory to a forest. I call it a biological desert. It is very bad news. States are moving to ban it. The nursery industry, on the other hand, is looking for a completely sterile cultivar. That work is uh, being undertaken. I think up in Connecticut. You, as a nurseryman, should be paying attention to this. Uh, uh, supporting A and ANLA, the American Nursery and Landscape Association's Horticultural Research Institute, uh, which helps fund research into finding sterile cultivars of bad actors. Barberry is probably at the top of every land manager and environmentalist no-no list. Um, As we go down the list, the poster child from the 90s of a Herbaceous perennial that is um the consummate bad actor I think it's banned in twenty four states it may be up to twenty six now is purple loosestrife or lithrum and it's uh there there are multiple species and cultivars. Uh, this plant spreads into marshes and wetlands. I personally used to grow in the uh, late eighties and early nineties every cultivar that I could find of lithrum. I thought it was a great plant. It started to bloom in Maryland in Memorial Day and, blo- and bloomed past first frost. It grew faster than the Japanese beetles could eat it. Uh, it was one of the few plants that bloomed through the entire growing season. Uh, employees could accidentally drive over it and it wouldn't kill it. You could accidentally round it up and it wouldn't kill it. It's just what a remarkable plant. And then, of course, when you apply all of this to natural areas, and yes, indeed, it does spread, once again, you get a monoculture or a a biologic desert, it replaces everything and changes the actual uh, soil structure and chemistry, uh, resulting in a collapse of the food web. So amphibians first and then birds, it's a true bad actor that has been banned in many states. There are alternatives. It's kind of the classic uh, poster child where you shouldn't be growing or selling it. If you are, once again, check with local government and see what the status is in your state. Okay. Right behind that is uh, the great family of Miscanthus, uh, an ornamental grass, another one of my favorite plants until I found out that, oh, man, I could grow this from seed. wasn't true to variety but I was getting over 90% germination rate. I think my propagator told me it was better than 95% and it was coming up all over the nursery. It's now up and down 95 in drainage ditches and stormwater ponds. Um, If you can time it right, if you've got to grow it, grow the late blooming varieties or cultivars of miscanthus such that your early frosts will kill the seed. But miscanthus is definitely on a watch list for nurserymen and sellers uh, because it's on, um, well, it's a target species for many of the land managers and people whose job it is to maintain natural areas. And remember, miscanthus in a drainage ditch causes other problems just besides the reduction in biologic diversity it can also mess with water flow. Vines, vines are a notorious classification of plants that are bad news. I remember how excited I was to discover porcelain berry in the 1980s as a wonderful retail opportunity. Easy to propagate, by easy I mean didn't cost a lot of money and I could have a big markup on it, and I could guarantee it for three lifetimes because nobody could kill it, and it it exceeded customers' expectations until it took over their backyard, their neighbor's yard, the forest behind them, and then the house. <laughs> Porcelain berry is a definite, if you're growing this, you may really want to check uh, local uh, government and your state government to see how advisable this is. Okay a classic bad actor is burning bush that's the uh, the red euonymus in the fall it's an interesting plant because for the rest of the season it's kind of boring it's a, it's a big green round blob and then it turns this bright red in the autumn and that's why people plant it because it stands out against the yellow yellow if you do this right i've seen people plant um yellow evergreens and some blue evergreens, and then the the euonymus providing red, and you you actually get a color presentation in the autumn that is just striking. But this plant, too, doesn't stay put. Its seeds uh, are spread by wildlife, and once it gets into parkland, a riparian area, it's quickly moved into larger areas, and it just takes over uh, the entire seen. It's hard to kill, which is one of the reasons why we like it in the nursery industry. You know, we want to sell plants to customers that don't die. All the plants that I've just talked about share the fact that they're aggressive and muscular, and you can feel good about the customer having success. And that's what business is all about. We don't want to sell them plants that they take home and are dead in two weeks. We're selling a dream, and we want the customer to know how easy it is to increase the value of their property. And if we fill their property with plants that are difficult, require hands-on care 24-7, we don't get repeat business. In the 20th century, especially after World War II, there was this movement to find plants, such as I just talked about, that were indestructible. And what you need to keep in mind is the very nature of indestructible. Insects don't eat it, diseases don't kill it, uh, the weed whacker doesn't harm it, and chemicals, well, you really have to pour them on to do anything. All of those positive traits in a landscape become negative when it leaves the landscape, either through seed, uh, cut cutting, vegetative cuttings like English ivy. If you go along and trim the edge of English ivy and you throw because... Well, you don't want to fill a landfill, so you throw the clippings into the park behind you. Well, it vegetatively reproduces, and in no time the trees are down behind you. Mm -hmm. English ivy doesn't actually kill the tree. It pulls the branches off of it uh, because it's just not meant to be. It didn't evolve here. These are, I would say, classic east of the Mississippi plants for the nursery industry to look after, and nothing on this list is brand new. If you've been following this, all of these plants that I just mentioned have been talked about since the late 90s as the industry needs to think about what it's doing. None of these are recent introductions, and all of them are found in garden centers, landscape designs, and therefore are produced by wholesalers and production nurseries because there is a demand.
0: Okay. So this is something that these are still being produced at these nurseries, and what can a nursery do if if they're concerned about, that they might that they are growing these plants and they they are now aware that it's on a list or that in their area after they've contacted their um, their their local uh invasive species council uh how how what what can they do to really move forward then
1: there uh it used to be that used to be a very difficult question and I could charge big bucks to answer it <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately for me the answers are now easily available online i just Uh, while talking, typed in alternatives, invasive species, and I think I'm up to, what, 1,200 pages. The first two pages that I just looked at include um, lists of these invasives and others with alternatives from the U.S. government to states. So uh, the Maryland Extension has a list. I see here a Minnesota Extension, Ohio Extension, Uh, The National Park Service has a great Weeds Gone Wild with alternatives. Your Extension Service is the person I'd turn to first. Uh, The nursery industry has a long and wonderful relationship with State uh, Agricultural Extension, and that's where I'd go first because they will be able to provide an alternatives list that uh, connects with the invasive problems in your area these are online. They're, they're easy to find now.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, and if you would like to know more about invasive species, uh, check out John Peter's blog. Uh, if you go to Google and type in Invasive Notes, it'll be the first result, and you can also find him on Twitter, at Invasive Notes, uh, and uh, feel free to contact him on either of those, uh, through either of those avenues, and uh, yeah, sort of discussion. Uh, John, I wanted to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with us today and to uh, record this podcast.
1: Thanks. It's been
0: great. All right. Thanks.